Can you hear me? Oh, good. There we are. Good morning. Good morning. And welcome. It is so good to see all of you at Thursday morning, Women in the Word. Feels like we've been gone a long time. And, uh, and I guess we have. We've had Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's. We've had lots of holidays. They said there's a lot of new people here for the first time. If this is your very first time to be at Women in the Word, raise your hand this morning so I can see you. Ooh, that's wonderful. Marvelous. Yeah, give them a hand. I am so glad that you are here. Thank you so much for coming. I hope your holidays were wonderful. I uh, just had a lovely time. I was in Miami. Um, I am Deb Haygood, by the way, for all of you new people. I um, am Deb Haygood, and I was in Miami over the holidays with my family. My, uh, we were at my mom's house. That's where I grew up, and all my, uh, my two brothers and my sister all lived there and their families, and uh, my whole family got to go. So I had my new grandson, baby Dylan, and that was a thrill. And my son proposed to his sweetheart before we went, and so I also had my new soon-to-be daughter-in-law with us, so it couldn't have gotten any better. And uh, I also played Ultimate Frisbee. I don't have time to go into it, but for those that want to know more, you can talk to me afterwards. But I was on the winning team and caught the Frisbee for a goal. Uh, My little nephews had made quite a lot of fun of Aunt Debbie before we started, but um, by the end of the game, because they were not on the winning team, they showed me some respect. So, um, you know, but I tried to tell them, it's really my generation that, you know, threw Frisbees. So I've done that before. Anyway, that was quite fun. This semester, we're going to be looking together at the topic of wisdom all semester long, and I'm so excited about that. And this first five weeks, we're going to um, explore living as a wise woman, and we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes and see what truth God has given us in Ecclesiastes that will give us insight into living as a wise woman. How do we do that? What is involved? Now, we all probably have a thought of, uh, you know, what a wise woman is. Many times we've probably thought, I wish I had handled that situation more wisely. I wish I had spoken more wisely. We wish we had had more wisdom in certain situations. And in that picture of a wise woman, the one thing that she is not is a know-it-all. A know-it-all. We, uh, wisdom is more than just gathering a lot of facts. And so when I read the funny papers last Sunday, this really jumped out at me. Uh, it's classic Peanuts, and it's Lucy, the quintessential know-it-all, talking to her little brother Linus. And I want to tell you what's in each frame because it uh, made me laugh out loud. First frame, here, Linus, look what I've done for you. I've made up a list of New Year's resolutions that I feel you need desperately to make. Actually, these are reforms which will help you to become a better person. Linus is looking at the paper. Well, how nice. That was very thoughtful of you, Lucy. I shall try earnestly to improve myself in all these areas. I'll make good use of this list. I'll try very hard to improve. I really will. In fact, I think I'm getting better already. Look at me. I'm improving. And he has a big smile. Then he crunches up the paper and begins to laugh. Ha, 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 ha. And the very last frame is Lucy looking dejected, and she says, reformers have a hard life. (laughs) 
And I thought, uh, poor Lucy. I relate to Lucy because um, I had two brothers younger than myself and a little sister. And oftentimes um, they teased me, I hope they were teasing, and called me a know-it-all and kind of bossy. So I, over the years, have related to Lucy. I, I hope I'm getting better at that. But that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about becoming wise and living as a wise woman. What we want is that kind of wisdom. So let's look at a few definitions of wisdom and see what we come up with. Uh, Did everybody get their outline and verse sheet? Okay, we've got a couple of these on your outline here. Webster's Dictionary says that wisdom is understanding of what is true, right, or lasting. Common sense, sagacity, good judgment. Sagacity, I love that word. It comes from the word sage. Um, My topical Bible defines wisdom as comprehensive knowledge that is put into practice. A simple definition of wisdom that I like is the ability to live life skillfully. It's skillful living. And to elaborate on that is applying well our knowledge to life from God's perspective. It's applied spiritual knowledge. And the kind of wisdom that we want must include God. Because the Bible tells us that wisdom is from God. Wisdom is a gift from God. On your verse sheet, I've got a couple of verses there. We see it all through the Bible, but I just put two verses down. Proverbs 2.6, Solomon um, wrote Proverbs. And it says, For the Lord gives wisdom... And from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And then in Daniel 2.21 it says, He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. You also saw in your questions today in Ecclesiastes 2.26, it said that it is God who gives us wisdom. So the comprehensive definition of wisdom that I have on your outline is the God-given ability to pursue, the, to perceive the true nature of a matter and to implement the will of God on that matter. Now, the word for wisdom in the Old Testament is the same word that is sometimes used for this godly wisdom, and then sometimes it's used to refer to someone with specific skills or intellectual achievements. So we need to be careful when we look at the word wisdom for the context. But in the New Testament, Paul differentiates between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And when I say world, I'm talking about unbelievers. The wisdom of unbelievers versus the wisdom of God. So if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians, we we need a Bible today. There may be some under the pews if you didn't bring one. And we're going to turn to a couple of places, if you will. And first is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And it's back in the New Testament. It's the Gospels and then Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. And we're going to look at what Paul says about the wisdom of God. We're going to start in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I can still hear you turning, so I'm going to pause a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18.
But to, to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength." This message is still true today. Those who do not believe the message of salvation through Jesus Christ think that that is foolish. It's foolishness. It doesn't make sense to them. But as believers, it makes sense to us because we have the mind of Christ. We read that, um, if you want to turn over to chapter 2, that last verse there, 16, says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Christ knows the mind of the Lord, and we have the mind of Christ. So as believers, we can have spiritual discernment and understand the wisdom of God. Where do we begin? Today we're going to talk about some foundational things for wisdom. And so where do we begin in our quest for wisdom? On your verse sheet, I have Proverbs 9.10, and it says... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So, that is where we begin, with fear of the Lord. What is fear of the Lord? Many of you are familiar with that phrase. When we think of fear, most of the time today we think of being frightened, and that's really fear of the Lord uh, is so much more, it is so much bigger than that. One place I read said that fear of the Lord is to recognize God's character and respond by revering him, by trusting him, by worshiping him, by obeying him, and by serving him. To stand in awe of the Lord. A couple years ago, a few years ago, my daughter was at Texas Tech, and so we went to Lubbock, and we were going to Colorado, and we took that road from Lubbock to Amarillo to Colorado. And on that road, some of you are familiar, if you turn off, you can get to Paladura Canyon. So this one day, we decided we would go see Paladura Canyon. My husband had seen it. My um, daughter had been there, but I don't think my son had. And I had not been there, but I thought I kind of knew what it was going to be like. I had a picture of it, and I was real excited to go. And so we turned off the road, and we went to Paladura Canyon, and we went through the gate, and there it was. Now, let me preface this by saying I've not seen the Grand Canyon. But when I saw Paladura Canyon... I was amazed. I was blown away. I had no idea. I thought I knew in my mind what it was going to look like, but I did not. It was this huge, big canyon, and the rocks were gorgeous with the sun shining on it out of the west, and it looked pink and orange, and you could see the different stratifications, and it went down deep, and I was just amazed, and I kept talking and talking and saying, oh my goodness, I had no idea it was going to look. This is amazing. This is awesome. 
And, it, and it's so amazing because you've just come along this plain, those of you that know West Texas, and it's flat, and then all of a sudden, here's this huge canyon, and I just almost couldn't take it in. And I kept talking, and I said, what must the settlers, the first settlers coming across in the wagon trains, what would they have thought when they saw this? And somebody in the back seat popped up and said, well, they couldn't have been more odd than you are. So, <laughs> And I thought, you know, that is standing in awe of the Lord. You know, we think we know who God is. We think we have a picture of him. And then we read something in the word of God or we're praying and the spirit of God comes out. And we see, for we get a glimpse of God's awesomeness, of his power, of his love for us. And we stand in awe of the Lord. That's what it means to fear the Lord. Jesus, God the Son, came to earth so that we might know the Father. We read that um, in John 1.18. And Jesus also made possible an eternal relationship with him by his atoning work on the cross. By By his sacrifice and death on the cross that covers our sin, our unholiness, so that we might have a relationship with the Holy God. When we accept this gift, when we believe... And trust Jesus for our salvation. We're filled with his Holy Spirit. And like it says in 1 Corinthians, anyone who knows God's Spirit, anyone who is it that knows what he's doing, Christ does. And we have the Spirit of Christ. We can discern spiritual things because we have the mind of Christ. As believers, we have that capacity to understand. So that's our first step, ladies, in gaining wisdom, fear of the Lord. Next, we're going to read Proverbs 2, and you don't have to turn there, but listen carefully as I read it for you. Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 6. My, and what I want you to listen for are the action verbs. Lynn, you'll love this part. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. When I hear all those action verbs to apply your heart, to call out, cry aloud, to look for, to search for it as treasure, I see discipline being involved. Discipline is going to be involved if we want to become wise. We've said that wisdom comes from God, that it's a gift of God, but I also see God telling us here that there is effort involved on our part. We must exercise discipline so that we might learn to live wisely. And you're going to have to exercise discipline this semester if you want to grow in wisdom. As you do your questions and look in God's word and studying it, it's going to take time and discipline. As you pray and you ponder and you think about the truth that God is telling us in his word, it will take discipline. So our second thing is discipline. And then the third thing we find in James 1.5, on your verse sheet it says... If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. So the third thing is to ask God. So ladies, today, this afternoon, um, when you walk out of here, personally, 
ask God to give you wisdom. Every day, this semester, as we study this, ask God for wisdom. When you sit down to do your questions and to study the word and to pray to the Lord, ask God for wisdom. The third step is to ask for wisdom. Okay, that's kind of the foundation for wisdom. And for the next five weeks, we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes to gain insight on facing the reality of everyday life. Now, don't get scared about Ecclesiastes. It is, uh, some people think it hard and difficult, but it's really a great book, chock full of wisdom that God has given us. And I think at the end of this five weeks, you are going to um, also be very excited and, and have a great fondness for the book of Ecclesiastes. It has much to tell us about how to live wisely in our everyday life. And I want us to be able to live skillfully, to apply spiritual knowledge, to have discernment in those circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in every day. The mundane things, as well as those things that take us by surprise. I had a friend a few weeks ago say to me, Deb, you know, we're all just one phone call away from our whole world being turned upside down. And that's very true. Life can be difficult. It can be unpredictable. And it can be confusing. You know those phone calls that I'm talking about. Um, I think we've probably all had something of that nature. Those phone calls that uh, someone's life is hanging in the balance. Or maybe it's a doctor calling and there's a diagnosis that he has for you that is going to change your day tomorrow and next week and maybe for the rest of your life. Or maybe it's that phone call that your husband makes and says, I'm not coming home again. It's those hard phone calls like that that turn our world upside down. And it's in those times as well as the everyday Times that I want us to be able to live wisely, to live skillfully. And that's what I think the book of Ecclesiastes can really help us with in these next five weeks. Solomon is probably the author of Ecclesiastes, and I say probably because not everybody agrees with that, but most people do, and for the purpose of this study, we are going to um, say that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. I think there's quite a few things. I'm not going to go into all the uh, reasons why I think that, but there's quite a few things in Ecclesiastes that seem to show that to me. And since Solomon wrote this, I want us to take a few minutes and look at who Solomon is. We did this a little bit uh, last semester when we studied the kings, but I want us to look at... So it may be a review for some of you, but let's turn to 1 Kings, um, and that's way in the front of your Bible. 1 Kings, and we're going to start with um, chapter 3, verse 7. You may remember that Solomon Solomon was the king of Israel after his father, King David. Solomon was the son of David. And he was known for his wisdom. And that's because when he first became king, this is what he asked of the Lord. And we read 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. 
So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And so God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. If we turn over to um, chapter 4 and we look at verse 29, we see this elaborated on. Chapter 4, verse 29 says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. I was just on the seashore, and there's a lot of sand just in the little spot I was sitting. So that is a great deal of wisdom. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt, and he goes on to say uh, greater than so many others. Solomon was known for his wisdom. And yet, with all of his God-given wisdom, Solomon does not always act wisely. And the reason for that is because he disobeys God. He takes his focus off God and disobeys him. And I just want to look at that because I think that it can be a great lesson for us. So turn over to, um, let's see, uh, chapter 11 in that first Kings. And actually, we're going to start at the bottom of chapter 10 verse 26, and we're going to see how Solomon disobeys the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 26. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses, and this is important, so listen, were imported from Egypt and from Kew. Now, ladies, you're probably sitting there thinking, what is so wrong with that? Well, in God's word, Deuteronomy 17, and Deuteronomy, that's the book that Moses wrote that is filled with commands that God gave him. Deuteronomy 17 on your verse sheet says this, And this is a command especially for the king. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Okay, so we see that Solomon does have lots of horses, and he sent people to Egypt to get them. And then if we look in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. 
And if you drop down to verse 9, it says, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, with all his wisdom, let his focus be turned away from God and disobeyed God. Now, probably Proverbs was written when Solomon was younger and walking faithfully with God. And then he writes Ecclesiastes as a much older man in the later years of his life. And the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon asking the question, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? And we see all the things he tries to find that answer and what his final conclusion uh, will be. The book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's spiritual journey, and we can learn much from that journey. Some say that Ecclesiastes is hard to understand and difficult at times, but it can also turn your heart and your mind back toward God better than any other book in the Bible. I love Ecclesiastes, as you might have figured out, and I am not alone. Thomas Wolfe said this about it. Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing I have ever known, and the wisdom expressed in it the most lasting and profound. R.C. Sproul says God used Ecclesiastes 11.3 to bring home to bring him to a personal relationship with Christ. Now, when you have time, look up that verse. It's pretty amazing that that's the verse that brought him to a conversion experience. And then Jacques Ellul, who is the noted French scholar and author of over 40 books, one of them a book on Ecclesiastes, he says this, I have read, meditated on, and prayed over Ecclesiastes for more than 50 years. And that may be what it takes to really understand it. But, and it has perhaps given me more and spoken to me more than any other. Eugene Peterson says this about Ecclesiastes in his opening in the message. It is our propensity to go off on our own, trying to be human by our own devices and desires that makes Ecclesiastes necessary reading. Ecclesiastes sweeps our soul clean of all lifestyle spiritualities so that we can be ready for God's visitation revealed in Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes is a John the Baptist kind of book. It functions not as a meal, but as a bath. It is not nourishment. It is cleansing. That same thought I read when it said that Ecclesiastes, in a way, is humanity's cry for a Savior. And we're going to see why that is so true. Let's turn to Ecclesiastes, and this is the last place you have to turn. Ecclesiastes 1. It's right after Proverbs. We have Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. These are the uh, wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes 1, we're going to start in verse 1. Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek word ecclesia, and I always laugh when I say that because of the movie, um, you know, Big Fat Greek Wedding, and he was saying everything comes from the Greek, and sure enough, here's another thing. It comes uh, from the word ecclesia, which means assembly. It means gather together for the purpose of teaching. And Solomon, throughout Ecclesiastes, he refers to himself with the Hebrew word quoheleth, which means teacher, or some translate it preacher. It really means assembler, the one that gathers the assembly for teaching. So let's begin reading Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. 
the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Whoa. Right off the bat, Solomon grabs our attention. He just plows right in. And throughout this book, we're going to see this kind of stuff, this emotion and raw honesty. We see Solomon often speaking with emotional abandon, and he uses the superlative, so sometimes things seem exaggerated. He starts out with meaningless, meaningless. And that word meaningless in the NIV, in, if you have the King James, um, it's vanity, vanity, vanity. That Hebrew word is habal, habal. And it literally means emptiness, futility, a vapor that disappears quickly, leaving nothing behind. We see this word vanity or meaningless, meaningless, um, 38 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's read on. What does man, verse 3, what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea. Yet, the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Have you ever thought like this? Have you ever thought, this is pointless? You know, what's the meaning in what I'm doing? Ladies, have you ever washed a load of towels? And you fold them up and you put them up and that night or maybe the next morning they're all taken out again and they're wet and they're dirty and they're hanging around. Or what about house cleaning? This sounds to me like Solomon was thinking about house cleaning. You vacuum and you dust and then you vacuum and you dust again and again and again. And and my favorite thing is dinner. What about dinner? You chop and you cook and it takes about an hour. Sometimes if I was really on a tear, I could get it done in 30 minutes. And you sit down at the table and the family devours it and they're gone in less than 15. And you're sitting there looking at the dirty dishes. You know, this is just an aside, but I I just was so tired of that that I made this rule in my house. I would try to cook dinner in 30 minutes and then they had to sit there and eat it for 30 minutes. And it made me so happy as long as it lasted, which was about one week. So that didn't work. But, yeah, those kinds of things sometimes can make us feel um, like life. What is the meaning to life? We want our lives to make a difference in some way, and that's what Solomon is wanting here. He's wanting to know, what is the significance to what I'm doing? Now, I'm not really all that philosophical, Um, I like Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is a very philosophical book. But when I was young, I really didn't spend that much time pondering the meaning um, of life, of my life. What was the meaning in life? But I know that there are some people that are more philosophical, and they do spend a lot of time thinking about the meaning of life and analyzing life. And one of those people is my son, Ben. God gave me Ben. And I learned this about Ben quite early. In fact, I want to tell you this story. It was the beginning of second grade, 
And Ben came home. So he was seven, going, going to be eight, first couple weeks, and he was bummed out. He was not a happy camper, and I think he probably wasn't liking second grade. I don't, don't remember all that. But I remember we went out in the backyard, and we were swinging. We were both sitting on the swing set, and I probably was trying to say something real, um, you know, counselly, like name three good things that happened today at school. And he just looked at me with these eyes wise beyond his age, and he said, Mom, you're a little kid for a while, and you get to play. And then you go to kindergarten. And then you go to elementary school. And after that, it's junior high. And then you go to high school, and then to college, and then you get a job, and then you die. (laughs) What is the point? You all are laughing, but I was blown. I mean, my hair was blown back. I was sitting in there in the swing thinking, God, who, uh, you know, what seven-year-old asks, what is the meaning of life? And, and I, what am I supposed to say? I really don't know that I had thought that much about it. And I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm not sure what I said. But I remember that time and thinking, Ben needs to read Ecclesiastes. Because this is the same question that many of us, probably all of us, at some point in our life have asked. And it's the question that Solomon is asking. What is the meaning of life? And so we see Solomon do many things to try and find this meaning. And so let's um, read on here and look at some of the things he's trying. And I may skip around a little bit for time. But verse 12 says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. Verse 18 says, For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. So Solomon here looks, his first thoughts about wisdom is that it is a heavy burden. And I think that phrase, that must be where we get ignorance from. Ignorance comes, um, in ignorance is bliss. Because obviously knowledge comes sorrow. And then next we see that Solomon tries pleasure. I thought in my heart, this is chapter 2, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? He tried cheering himself with wine and embracing folly. And still, it all proved meaningless. Then in verse 4, we see that he undertook great projects. Now, we've probably all known people that have gone that route. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees. He got into nature to look for the meaning. He made reservoirs, so we see an irrigation system. We see that he had wealth and he had luxury. He even tried, it says, I acquired men and women singers. He even tried listening to music. And the same result. It was all meaningless. In verse 12, he has some more comments about wisdom. He says, well, you know, wisdom is better than folly, but still in the end, you die. That's it. You have the same fate as the foolish person. And then I want to read verse 17 here. Actually, this whole little passage, and I want you to listen to a phrase that keeps repeating over and over. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. 
a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This, too, is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. And we drop down to 23. It says, all his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is meaningless. We can hear the despair and the discouragement in Solomon's voice as he talks here about life. He's so discouraged that he can't even sleep at night. And the key phrase here is, what? Under the sun. Under the sun. We see that phrase 29 times in Ecclesiastes. And let me tell you, and this is very important, whenever you see under the sun, that is Solomon talking about life apart from God. Under the S-U-N, natural sun, that is life apart from God. And this is why I love Ecclesiastes, because it is so relevant. Nothing has really changed over 3,000 years. Did you notice that? People today are still trying the very same thing Solomon tried to make life meaningful. He tried the very same things. He tried pleasure. He tried drinking. He tried women and music. He tried projects. He looked at wisdom. He studied It's all the same things that we see people trying today. Nothing has changed. And the answer has not changed. It is still the same. The answer to meaning in life is God. And we begin to see a glimpse of Solomon coming to that realization in verse 24. And it says, A man can do nothing to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. And if you'll turn, we're going to turn to the back of this book, chapter 12. I don't know how many of you have ever had a book you were reading and you thought, I can't wait till the end. I'm going to turn to the back and see what happens. I don't recommend it, but I think in this situation it's going to help us with our understanding of Solomon and the book of Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, and the very last two verses. Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is going to be Solomon's final conclusion. We're looking at it kind of ahead of time. But um, he has come back to that point that we see in uh, Proverbs, to fear God. That's the point. That is the whole point. In our arrogance or rebellion, or maybe it's just foolishness, we think that we can live apart from God. And the truth is that it's impossible to experience true joy apart from God. God is the answer to the meaning of life. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher and Christian, said that without God, we are totally ignorant and inescapably 
unhappy. Solomon finds after all his searching that God is the answer. The whole purpose of man, the whole point, is to fear God and keep his commandments. We have the added blessing of a personal relationship with Jesus. We know Jesus, God the Son, who we also see all throughout Ecclesiastes. Solomon was looking for ultimate truth, and Jesus said, these are on your verse sheet in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Solomon was looking for a meaningful life. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. If you look over at verse 11 here in chapter 12, we see this, um, this verse that says, The words of the wise are like goads. That means they prod us on. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. It's interesting that Solomon would refer to God as shepherd. In John 10:11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Solomon calls himself teacher in Ecclesiastes, and he's a foreshadowing of Christ coming and walking on earth when people, disciples, and others would call him teacher. Some say that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes as an elderly and repentant man, and I hope that is true, and it looks like that could be the case because we see Solomon turning his focus back to God. Solomon was drawn away from God as he focused on those things around him, wealth and wives and power and privilege, but it looks like he has come back and focused on God. One commentator calls Ecclesiastes the idol buster, and we see that, all those idols. Um, And we've talked a lot about idols last semester. John Calvin describes the human mind as a factory of idols. He says it is constantly elevating created things or persons to places of utmost importance in our lives. These are things that we plan our life around, devote our energy to, and sacrifice other things to achieve. This is what Solomon had done. But if we believe Solomon, we realize they don't satisfy. They don't deliver the goods. When we realize this, then we can come to a place like Solomon did, that we can grow in knowledge and that we can grow in grace. We come to a place where we can and we do fear God. We're not looking at things under the sun, the natural sun, but instead we're looking under the S-O-N, the Son of God. And I have that little, um, it's sort of dim, but that little, uh, this this is my own little graphic. Um, I don't think I saw it anywhere, but I could have because there's nothing new under the sun. Um, it's It's not totally perfect. It represents all of life, and we know all of life would be infinite, and the circle's finite. But anyway, stretch it out. All of life. And all of life, when we have, when we look at it under the natural sun, that is a narrow human perspective. And when we see that in Ecclesiastes, that's what Solomon's doing. He's looking at life just under the sun, apart from God, that narrow perspective. And you do feel, when you look at it like that, that all is vanity. As believers, as wise women, we want to look at life under the S-O-N, 
That is the broad and eternal perspective. That's the perspective that looks at life, including God. And that is the first point that I want to make in this five-week series, that a wise woman has an eternal perspective. And we don't want to lose that at any time during this five-week study. A wise woman has an eternal perspective. Matthew 6, 20 through 21 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, material things aren't bad. It's what we do with them and what we think about them. Thomas Akempis said it like this, and I love this in his little book, Imitation of Christ. Let temporal things be used, but things eternal desired. You cannot be satisfied with any temporal good because you were not created to enjoy these alone. So we can use temporal things, but let's desire eternal things. That's what having an eternal perspective is. Matthew 6.33 says, and this is uh, translated in the message, Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Let's not be distracted by those material things around us, by having that narrow perspective. Let's have the eternal perspective with God. A wise woman looks at life with an eternal perspective. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are an awesome God and we stand in awe of you. Father, I come humbly this morning thanking you for all that you've done for us, thanking you for your word, thanking you for this book of Ecclesiastes and the life of Solomon and what it can mean for us, Father, as we um, ask you to give us wisdom. Father, make us women that live wisely. Father, help us to have an eternal perspective and to see life always, every day, with that eternal perspective. God, I ask that you would bless each woman in this room. I pray that you would be with them in a mighty and powerful way today and that you would bring us all back next week. And in that meantime, Father, I pray that you would give us insight and wisdom as to how you would have us live our lives. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name.